You are now tuned in to the Project 365 Experience. Welcome back, guys, to the Project 365 Podcast. I am your host, Coach O, and this week we have Coach Nolan Willett who is going to join us for episode 25. Coach Nolan is the associate head coach at Edge Prep, which is one of the premier um, Canadian prep schools that we have here in Canada. Uh, we talk about his experiences. He lived in the U.S. for a little bit, so that's very interesting. Um, talks about his playing career, talks about how he transitioned into coaching, and gives us an update on how his season is going. Very interested um, just to hear and be more aware of how his perspective on him living in the U.S., um, what are some of the things that he wants to bring um, to his uh, coaching now in Canada? So stick around for that one. And in the basketball coaching section, we're going to look at how can we defend a player who is a downhill player, right? Who's a player that likes to drive and get to the paint. Very fun episode. Very insightful episode. Let's not waste any time. Let's dive straight into our interview with the associate head coach of Edge Prep, my guy, Mr. Nolan Willett. I am very excited and be and beyond honored to be joined by Nolan Willett from Edge Prep, the associate head coach at Edge Prep. Nolan, how are you doing? I'm doing great, man. Uh Really happy to be here. I've been a big fan of your content for a while. So a lot of mutual friends, a lot of mutual people. So I'm excited about this. It's going to be fun. Yeah, I appreciate it. I appreciate it. So uh, tell me one thing. I, I got to dive into it because Canada is big. Yeah. And Western Canada doesn't get a lot of the rep that I believe that it should be getting. What is sure. one thing you want people to know about Western Canada? I would say even could though... Be, could be anything. Could be anything. It doesn't have to just be basketball. <clears throat> I would say it's a completely different style of basketball, but the new generation of kids out here have a chip on their shoulder because of what you just said. I would mm -hmm. say there, there's a wave of kids that got a chip that are, are seeing the attention that their peers are getting, and they maybe feel like they're better than some of those kids, and they want to prove it. And... I think we have a great example of that, uh, of some of the kids we got at Edge that, you know, their day-to-day -day life and the amount of that they of work that they put in, I think if some people out there in Ontario knew what they were doing on a day-to-day -day basis, they would be surprised. Mm. And they definitely got a chip on their shoulder. I'll leave it at that. I think there's some kids that have a lot to prove and they're ready to prove it. Mm -hmm. It's funny that you're saying that because, you know, originally I'm from Montreal. I'm from Montreal and it's like where my eyes started opening was just like, you know, a lot of times you think the grass is greener, the yeah. next place where you go to and all that. Right. So it's like, you know, being from Montreal, a big thing is, oh, in Toronto, like that's where all the resources where everybody tries yeah. to get to Toronto. And then afterwards, when people are in Toronto or uh, just Ontario in general, and afterwards yeah. they're like, OK, boom, they're trying to move to the U.S. They're trying to move this they're trying to move that, you know, but. I like what you just said, because I think a lot of people can have a lot of success if they just focus on the task that they have in front of them. Mm -hmm. And right now, the opportunity that some of these kids that you're talking about in Western Canada have is just that they could just focus on just getting better every day. Yeah, and I think it's it's I wouldn't say watered down a little bit less, but we do get kids all the time that, like you said, they 
they leave to go to Toronto or they leave to go to whatever prep school, wherever they're at. And there's not necessarily development there. There's not necessarily certain things. So when they get there, if they're not good today, if they're not who they're supposed to be today, they just get lost in the mix. There's another 10 players that play over them. They got four different teams there. you just get lost in the shuffle. And so um, I think a lot of kids out here do have an opportunity to, you know, just keep their head down and work and just develop. But we also do have issues as well with, you know, lack of competition. We're going to have to travel more to get mm-hmm. to get in. Like there, there is new prep schools emerging and new situations emerging in Western Canada. But a lot of times in their first couple of years, it takes a while to build a solid program and stuff. And the edge has been around for a while. So, I mean, for our kids, you know, we do have to travel a lot. And that's just uh, a realistic part about being in Western Canada is you're not going to get as much competition out here. But things are shifting. And I think traditional high school basketball is kind of dwindling away a little bit. And Mm -hmm. that's even happening in the city. And uh, people are being creative to work around that and stuff. But the downside is, yeah, definitely the travel. But the upside is, you know, you're a, you're a big fish in a small pond, right? So mm-hmm. you you do have a lot of resources. And if you keep your head down, you can be extremely successful. I like the analogy you said about a big fish in a small pond. Uh, sorry, you become you here. Well, you know, when you're in, I guess, quote unquote, smaller markets, you're a big fish in a small pond. So I guess like yeah. it's easier for you to breakthrough but you know going back to what you said about a lot of times people think that they have to be at an opportunity to become something Mm -hmm. and if they're not good right now they struggle yeah i see it all the time because a lot of times what ends up happening is like something as simple as i don't think i don't think people realize how competitive this basketball thing is yeah i don't think they realize and it's so funny because you know, something as simple as I never paid attention to it and really thought about it. But, yo, there's there's more people in the state of California that live than in all of Canada. Yeah, I tell people that all the time. I tell that people like that's that's a quote that I use once a week because I, guess, you know, I, I grew up out there. Right. So I know yeah. it's a complete like people you 100 percent hit on the head. Like people have no idea, man. People sometimes have no idea. Like. It's, it's great to have D1 aspirations. It's great to have this, this, and that. But, man, basketball is more competitive now than it's ever been. It's getting a U sport scholarship is as hard as it's ever been. Getting mm. a Division I scholarship is fucking next to impossible. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You got to be – you got to have limitless potential or you have to have, like, the perfect fit at the right time and be that guy to get that, right? But mm-hmm. – yeah, man, the landscape of basketball is we need as many truth tellers as possible because the more truth tellers there are, the more people will understand the landscape and be realistic about where they're at in the world because a lot of people have no idea. Rather, they didn't hoop or they just don't know the game and haven't been around. So they might think a kid is D1 and might be telling a kid that, but they don't know the landscape of the game right now. And so I think it's important that we tell the truth as much as possible mm-hmm. and and we understand what where basketball is at today. This is this is so good. This is so good because I like I got introduced to you know obviously what you and Rob have going, um, you know just the training and Deuce Brand and all the experiences and you saying that you growing up in Cali, you know like don't get it twisted. I've been a fan of you guys too. 
been, I've been, I've been keeping up. So I think for me, I want to know, and for the people that maybe don't know, who mm-hmm. is Coach Nolan? Like when the players come in and they get the opportunity to be coached by Coach yeah. Nolan, who is Coach Nolan? I would say that's a loaded question, but mm-hmm. Coach Nolan is not necessarily a coach first. Coach Nolan is originally a player that understands what players are thinking and what players need and what players want and what players need and what players want are usually two different things. And mm-hmm. I think I, have a, I do a pretty good job of being able to straddle that line of, you know, being the big brother, but being the truth teller at the same time. And, you know, I come from the world of player development. I come mm-hmm. from the training world. That's, that's where I come from originally. When I first came to edge, it was in a player development role it grew to assistant coach, it grew to associate, it grew to now, like, I'm 80% of the time I am head coaching. Um, I work hand in hand with Eddie Richardson, who has more plates on his table than probably any human shout being. Out, shout out Eddie, that's my guy. Hey, shout, shout out Eddie. Eddie. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, yeah, Co- Coach Nolan is is probably a bit of a unique coach because, like I said, I come from the player development world and I've grown into this coaching role, but I will always probably be in the development role um, throughout my life. My goal isn't to be a head coach forever or to be to climb up the coaching ranks. I think that I have a lot to offer basketball in other other realms as well. Mm-hmm. It's 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 so for me. Like I'm very interested just to hear the pathway, like how living in Cali and how your playing experience affected your philosophy now about sure. you know being like a coach slash trainer slash how does this, all of that come into a factor well it, it definitely factors in a lot because i've experienced a lot of different levels of basketball i've experienced a lot of different regions of basketball i was born in calgary moved to california when i was 13 um in grade eight so i had one year before high school um high school i ended up going to a school called J. Sarah catholic it's in the trinity league People who know schools like Modern Day, St. John Bosco, uh, Servite, San Margarita, very tough league. Uh, produces five to 10 NBA players every year, 10 to 20 NFL players every year. Um, but it's it's type of league that you don't have like fun nights off that you could just like, oh, we're playing so-and-so. I could just take it easy tonight. It was like Tuesday was Gabe York and Thursday was Caden, or Stanley Johnson and Monday was Tyler Dorsey and Daniel Hamilton and like, it was tough. Aaron Holiday on a Thursday, like it was it was NBA players after NBA players. And mm. I grew up in that environment. I grew up playing for a club team, a Reebok team called Fast Break LA. Practiced out of Crenshaw High. I was the only white person in the entire program. Mm-hmm. Six teams, I was the only white kid in the entire program. I grew up playing a lot of different styles of basketball. So I've seen it all, but I also seen how competitive it is and what real division one basketball players look like. I ran a triangle and two against Stanley Johnson. I had to chase that guy around the court. And when he was making those balls, life mixtapes and six, seven, two forty when he was in high school. So I seen it all. And, you know, finishing my career in high school, I had a bunch of D2 NAI offers and I thought I was better than that at the time and tried to go a year Juco had a great year, super fun, broke records at the school for assists, all that stuff. Still had D2 and NAA offers. I realized that's who I was and that's who I am. And 
Um, I realized I wasn't a division one player at the time physically and, you know, just lacking some things in my game. And um, my coach kind of made a suggestion about me playing back in Canada. I wasn't really trying to hear it at the time. Didn't know much. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and he sent out my film on a Thursday. By that Monday, I had 13 full scholarship offers back home. So people just saw the film. So I was a Juco guard, had good numbers, played fast, kind of played like a structured U sport player should be playing probably. So I took some visits, came back to Canada, had first year was pretty solid, ended up transferring to UMB to play um, out there right after Javon Masters was just finishing up and tore both my meniscuses and a hole in my knee within the next 10 months. And that was about it, man. That was my third, fourth year. I came back my fourth year, COVID happened decided yeah. man like i have my degree at that point and i was looking at it like do i force some more eligibility um or do i do kind of start moving on with life and by that point i was already training players every summer every year and um my father obviously had a pretty successful business he was had the highest number of players in southern california that he trained he trained mm-hmm. pro players several several d1 players he was mm-hmm. one that a lot of trainers out there so when he had moved back to Canada um he was started back up in Calgary here and I was kind of taking on a big role and as he branched out and did more stuff with Deuce Brown and some other things I ended up you know kind of taking over the day-to-day stuff a little bit more and linking up with Eddie and I've known Eddie since I was nine years old or whatever but we started connecting a little bit more and I was training a lot of the guys at the edge but just privately and mm-hmm. ended up coming on board and now I'm here <laughs> <laughs> Long, long story no that's amazing that's amazing so like tell me a bit about like just um like what is it from the california scene that you take because our experiences shape us right so it's like mm-hmm. you having the opportunity to live through that and yeah. you get the opportunity to come back how like talk about how what is it that you take from the california scene that you're trying to bring back here and also how was it to be around like people like Phil Handy and whatnot? Well, <laughs> loaded. Part, I'm giving you some loaded questions. <laughs> first part of that, I would say like one of the things I really take back is kind of what we talked about, like that, you know, the, the competition out there is not just who you're competing with in your own backyard. You're not just trying to be the best person in your school, best person in your city, best person in Western Canada and Canada. Mm-hmm. It's a big world out there. And um, not to get ahead of questions before you ask them, but I mean, like, been to Japan, been to Korea, been to Denmark, and trained players all over all over the world. And I could tell you, they want just what you have as well. They mm-hmm. want to go to college out here. They want to experience this stuff. So there's people that you're competing with all over the world. And in California, I would say if I had one thing that I really push on players from out there compared to in Canada is they play so much basketball. I'm not talking about training. I'm not talking about practicing. They play so much basketball. When I was in in high school, we would go, so your AU summer, spring, right? But then high school teams play in a fall league, then you got your regular season in winter, then you play in a league and you play in a summer league as well. So with your high school, I would play about 55 to 65 games a year. With AAU, you would play another 60 to 70 games a year. So you're playing over 110, 120 games every single year, minimum. But you got kids out here that might play 40 games in a year. Mm. 
And kids would play on five different AU teams. Whoever's playing that week, they're going to go get a game. They're going to play, man. They're going to 24-hour fitness. They're going to LA Fitness. We're playing basketball. And I think kids out here just don't play enough basketball. So when game time does come, they're not quite as confident in themselves or they're, they haven't been in every single situation. So even in our trainings, like summertime, when it's off season a little bit, we train for an hour, but then we play, we play every time. And like, we play every day and we stop it and I control it. And I try to explain situations, but we play as much as possible because the kids need it, man. They need to play. Right. Like kids just mm. don't, but kids out there, man, 150 games in a year. Some kids play. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's, a, that's mm-hmm. a big thing I would say like that I bring back is just kids, kids need to stay having fun and playing as much as possible because all the training, everything has to segue into a game. And we have to have applicable training that has a why behind everything. So you can explain how it transitions to the game, but the kids also have to have opportunities to use it. So if I'm playing for my high school team, my coach is only going to play me in my role. But if I play another 30 games or scrimmage or open run over there, over here, like in the summertime, I'll go play at UC Irvine, Long Beach State, like all these places where have runs and you could actually find out about yourself and who you are as a player but we don't get a lot of that opportunity out here Mm. Mm. and it's like it's it's so funny that you're saying that because i think that's one thing that i did this year with um my team Mm -hmm. um so i'm head coaching the junior team at uh at orangeville this year and that's the one thing that i noticed is like i think we're, we're getting out of covid we're getting out of like we're not feeling the effects as much anymore right and that's the one thing that i noticed is just like you know we're so drilled like our players are so drilled like they know all the the, the, that they'll do hesitation step backs for no reason but simple things like how do i guard this guy how do i play defense how do i okay this guy is trying to get as many right-handed layups as possible how do i cut off his move what is his move and all that kind of stuff just that scouting aspect Sure. I kind of feel like we're missing it because to your point, we're not playing enough. We're not getting these reps. We're not looking at, okay, this guy's a knockdown shooter. I got to make this guy play off the dribble. And the only way to really mm-hmm. work defense is playing defense. Mm-hmm. So you got to play countless hours of, of mm-hmm. defense to understand like how to cut guys off, how to use your arm to get inside of people. Like mm-hmm. there's that you got to have trial and tribulations to actually. Yeah. So yeah, no, hundred percent, hundred percent. Like, like, and so, so what I try to do, and I guess this is like similar to what you're doing in the summer, but it's just that I try to like, cause the way that I look at it is like, we, we grew up playing, like you're saying, playing in all these scrimmages, but we grew up playing at the park, man. Just like getting reps up, just, just five on five, you lose, you got to sit and yeah, you got to yeah. wait and all that kind of stuff. And it's like, what I try to do is I'm like, yo, let's try to reciprocate the playground environment in our practices. Yeah. And you'll notice that a lot of times when we walk these drills, and you're probably seeing it now as the associate head coach, when you walk these drills, you go five on no, you go five on no, the players are like, okay, what is this actually helping me for? And as soon as you get the chance to play five on five, it's like everybody activates. Like, yeah, yeah let's go. <laughs> no, it's definitely a different energy level. That's for sure um and yeah i mean to answer the second part of the question like the phil handies of the world i mean i've been able to i've been blessed to spend time around a lot of smart basketball minds and and pick a lot of brains of people that you know have given me a lot of keys to success throughout the training and coaching industry but you know phil is somebody that 
you know, that's, that's like a big uncle to me. I mean, I spent a lot of time with that guy and shit last, last summer I was in Japan with him for a mm-hmm. long time. Um, mm-hmm. And him and Jerry Vanderbilt's and experiencing that and being able to train players with him, run coaching clinics with him. Um, and yeah, I mean, I've, I've learned a lot more, I would say off the court, being able to mm-hmm. pick his brain about certain players and how they approach the game and how they approach trainings and, ask specifics about why Westbrook didn't work out in LA or like Mm -hmm. like into little details and things and um I've been able to sit on flights with him and be able to yo you're not sleeping this flight man I'm asking you questions (laughs) (laughs) yeah and he's good with it man he he actually respects that and um he's great with helping out the next generation of guys and he runs an event every August, this training certification thing. And I always help out and have some pieces in it and stuff. And um, this last summer I was working with Teresa Witherspoon um, and, you know, she just got inducted into the basketball hall of fame recently. And she put on a masterclass talking about how to guard picking roles for about an hour and to be able to work with her on the court, man, I was able to learn so much. And, you know, he surrounds surrounds people with really smart basketball players. The summer before, I was able to spend a few hours with Reggie Jackson and really pick his brain on some of the defensive and pick and roll actions as well. And man, he, he let me in on some conversations from his time in Detroit where Isaiah Thomas was trying to mentor him a little bit, like OG Isaiah Thomas. Um, and, man, yeah, just, just some great basketball mm-hmm. minds been around so and I'm, I'm definitely blessed and fortunate enough to be in those situations to, but I also am humbly and humbly saying that I have put in an extraordinary amount of work to put myself in those situations Absolutely. and uh, I'm a grinder like I I I do treat this as a full-time job because it is to me so I'm at the gym at seven in the morning I'm at the gym at nine at night I'm doing film. I'm doing things. My girlfriend probably wants to throw my phone into the ocean. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I work, man. I'm trying to do as much work early on to to set myself up to be in a good situations, right? Absolutely, and it's gonna pay off. You're yeah. on the right track. Talk, talk to me how um, something that must have been very eye opening, right? Mm-hmm. Is when you go up and you work with a lot of professionals, right? And, you know, you're just being around the circles that you're able to be around. Yeah. Um, Something that must be, talk to me how eye-opening it was when you realized that the best of the best keeps things so simple. Oh, yeah. That's, yeah. I had that, <laughs> I had that come, come to Jesus moment like years ago where I don't know if it was, so my high school coach, coached arguably the greatest AAU team of all time. It was Southern California All-Stars back when it was like Brandon Jennings, DeMar DeRozan, OJ Mayo, Kevin Love. Mm-hmm. It, was a, it went 49-0 and in the summertime. Won every single tournament. Um, Daniel Hackett, they just had some hoopers. Well, he was Clay Thompson's shooting coach. And Clay Thompson played at the rival um, high school for me, Santa Margarita. I played at J. Sarah. We were 10 minutes apart, hated each other. Police were at every game type thing. Yeah. Well, Clay Thompson, I seen him working out with him. And like the big thing was you go an hour, probably took 25 dribbles and probably missed less than five shots. Right. And I was able to spend time in the summers with Jordan Lawley, where I would train his younger kids. And in exchange, I would join his NBA combine training as a player and experience that. And man, it's like watching my dad train pro teams and stuff over the years. It's really like 
get to your spots, be shot makers, score from all three levels. Got to score at the rim, mid range, and three. Okay. Mm-hmm. But it's so efficient is playing off two feet in the paint, being able to have your footwork crisp into your pull up with a one, two to pull up at any time, two dribble pull up, one dribble pull up, sidestep, going catch and shoot from every angle off every type of screen. If you could just keep it that simple to those things, then as you get older and as players get older, then they get more specific to what they need to train. Mm-hmm. Have a 10 to 13 year old, you have to show them the whole ocean because you need to develop everything. You need to be able to have footwork, shoot the ball, handle the ball, all these things. But when they hit 15, 16, they're in high school, maybe it's a little bit more specific. Hey, he's a guard. He's going to be a combo guard. He needs to handle the ball off pick and rolls. He needs to be able to hit shots. Well, now he's in university. Now his coach just wants him only to be, you know, off of pin downs, off Iverson because mm-hmm. he's and off the ball. So now his training has a little bit of everything else, but you got to find out how is that player going to make money? If that scholarship money, if that's professional money, mm-hmm. every player has a, a money skill. Okay. For me, I was a floor general. So my money skill was I could get us in our sets. I could get into the pain. I could create for others and I could hit shots when I'm open. Well, we have guys on our team that, you know, have certain specific things that they need to make sure that they're staying on top of every day because that's what's going to get them a scholarship. It might be a very specific small thing, and it doesn't mean you don't train everything else. But pro players, like if you take a, a Jared Vanderbilt, his workout sometimes 40 minutes. He plays off of uh, catching the ball in the corner, mm-hmm. going up. So he goes uphill to the guards, rolls middle, boom, pump fake, finishes both hands, spins, pivots, okay, short jumper off the corner. Then he goes flat screens up top where he rolls short elbow. Well, that's where he gets in the offense. He could get his work done in 45 minutes and it could be effective because he knows exactly what spots, exactly where he's getting it. So it's like the older you get, the funnel just gets smaller and smaller for what you actually need to work on. And it doesn't mean you don't work on your handles or do your catch and shoot threes, but you do know what's making you that money. So as a pro player, man, you really know what's making you that money. And the coaching staff, like a Lakers staff has... 25 coaches so they have been clear with film and everything exactly what they need out of you exactly how efficient you should be from the spots that you need to be so the player development staff is very easy because you know exactly what you need to do with every single player nolan i've i were over 20 episodes deep in my podcast and that may have been the most detailed explanation i've ever gotten I appreciate it. I'm not gonna do you short, man. Come on. No, that, but you you hit it on you hit that nail on the head because it's like the older you get, the more you kind of specialize. So, like you know, as we're going up and just things are becoming more narrower, the margin of error is smaller, the freedom that you have is a bit smaller too. Yeah. Right. And it's like, like you said, it's all the higher you get, the more competition, but it's like competition, not only for the skill set that coaches want, the skill set that make money, but competition for the people that you're going up against. For sure. hundred percent. Man. Now this is okay. So, so, okay. So I have to ask you this. Yeah. So you had the ability to be a floor general mm-hmm. as a, as a guard that's maybe not six seven, six eight, yeah, yeah, you know what I'm saying? Sure. A smaller guard. How what was your approach to the game like? I think for for smaller guards now more than ever, and I I feel like I was a living testament of this, you have to be the coach on the floor, right? You have to be able to be an extension of what the coach needs on the offensive and defensive side on the floor. You gotta have that calming presence. Like we have our point guard Jojo. He just won MVP 
in Denver on our EIBC session. Average 21 and seven. They did like these Elam endings out there, like the CBO. Mm-hmm. First three, get three game winners in a row. He gives us that feeling when I'm coaching, when the ball's in his hands, that everything's going to be okay. Gives a calming presence. Like, all right, no, JoJo's got the ball. We're good. Okay. So once he gets it, you feel calm as a coach. That feeling for a point guard, that's that's important. You got to be able to get the most out of every player on your team and understand that every player is different. Every player has to be talked to differently. Every player has to be approached differently. But as a point guard, if you can make the most or get the most out of all four of your teammates on the court, then you're a good point guard. If you understand your five needs a post-touch every now and then, but he doesn't need to catch it in this spot. Or if you need know your shooting guard just hit two shots and you're going to run the certain play for him to come off the double pin down, boom, and hit him. You got to be able to make the most out of everyone while still serving yourself as much as possible. And I think we have had a good history of point guards coming out of here. I mean, Jojo is obviously our guy this year, Jojo and Kai, we got two great point guards last year, Xavier Spencer, who's starting at Carlton as a freshman, mm-hmm. um, MJ Okado, who's also starting at Carlton is from here at edge. Um, yeah. We've had, we've had some really good point guards come out of here, man. And, um luckily our point guards are very mature in the sense that this day and age you get these guards that are quiet man they're quiet they don't Mm -hmm. know how to they don't know how to talk on the court they don't know how to talk and practice and i force it out of our point guards i make them talk like before practice i'll get them to address the team before games after practice i'll get their thoughts in front of everyone when things aren't going right i'll I'll speak in front of everyone straight to the point guards and because I mean, if you could go to a U sports school or a division one, division two school and already be mature enough to to navigate 20, 21, 22, 23 year olds as a 17, 18 year old, then the coach won't look at you like a kid. He'll look at mm. you like a kid, right? And um a lot of point guards act like kids in high school still. And it's so hard to get a scholarship as a point guard right now. It's just because transfers, JUCO kids coming back home, college mm-hmm. kids, you get these prep kids. So if you could set yourself apart by being mature, then I think that helps a lot. Mm. And what what were your trainings like as like, let's say you said you were a floor, you had to be the floor general, right? So it's like also being a smaller guard. Um, yeah. What, what were your trainings like? Like, what do you think smaller guards would need to be able to work on to be able to be successful? What skill sets? We talked about leading. We talked about communication and all those things. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I I think the three biggest things I I would key in on would be in no particular order. One is you got to be able to control the pace by controlling your own pace. So a guard who plays fast all the time is easy to guard. A guard who plays slow all the time is easy to guard. But a guard that could change pace on the court is very hard to guard and deal with. So if you understand the pace of a ball screen, how to play slow off it, then explode how to play fast and transition, how to set up the defender slow, but get quick past them and then get slow in the paint. Like we able to control your pace is huge. So I, when I train, you'll see me like my pops always uses like a car as an example. You're going to fourth gear quick, boom. Then you switch to first gear. Then you're in second gear. Then you're in third gear. And I think like working on your pace is one handle needs to be crisp, sharp. My, I worked on handle when I was young, like 12, 13 years old, I had an undeveloped basement. I used to ball handle 45 minutes every day. Like my fingers were bleeding. Like I used to ball handle a lot. And then the third one is you have to be a shot maker. If you can't hit shots, then people won't guard you. So mm-hmm. if you can't step, hit hit shots against the zone, if you can't hit shots, if they go under a ball screen, if you can't hit shots, I would say pace, handles, and, and shot making abilities for sure. Mm-hmm. You 
you said a good point right there. And it's like, you want to make the defense have to guard you. And I can't, yeah. I tend to find that nowadays, a lot of times players tend to run a lot of offense instead of like putting pressure on the defense. Talk about how important it is that you have to be a threat on the basketball court at all times to make the defense have to guard you because then it opens up certain things. For sure. I mean, like the objective of the game is to score more points than the other team. So if you're on the court, you can't score the ball. Um, that's typically a problem. So yeah, offensive sets don't work. You could, you could run anything you want. You could have the best actions in the world, but if you don't have players that could score off of those actions and be threats off of those actions, then it's going to be tough to be successful. And I think like guys have to understand how to have controlled aggression. So you want to be aggressive and you want to be able to be free on offense, but controlled in the same sense that we're looking still for the best possible shot. But I mean, I teach our guys and every set we run the first option when you catch it is if you can beat your guy and you could go to work, go to work. That only makes us better as a team. If you get in the paint, more times the, the ball touches the paint, the more times you win games. I mean, I forget what the stat is that they did at Duke a couple of years ago, where it was like every time they had 25 paint touches per half or something like that, they had a 65% win rate. And then when it was 30 mm-hmm. paint touches, it was like 80% or something like that. So, I mean, you touch the paint with the ball, you go to work and beat your guy. That makes us better drive, kick, swing, right? You could kick mm-hmm. it out and just opportunities for us. But yeah, I mean, we, we have a good set and we have good counter star sets but none of that matters if the guy who, who catches the ball can't make that play so the more plays you can make for your others and for yourself the more opportunities you have on the court mm-hmm. you you um do you think is there a specific like thing that you would be looking at let's say as a smaller guard like what what are you what are you kind of like looking at if let's say i'm trying to attack somebody specifically what am i don't look at who's in front of you. Look at who's behind you. If you've worked your game enough, you know you could beat the person in front of you. You just have to understand angles and how to create new angles for yourself. But you have to play one step in the future. So you got to see where help size coming from. You got to see how the defense is rotating, how they're guarding ball screens. But, I mean, Chris Paul said it best. He said when he was in with the Clippers, the Lob City era, he was running those pick and rolls. He said he didn't care what was going on in front of him because he knew he was going to turn the corner and get by the guy. He was looking at the weak side guy. Was he going to come all the way over and skip? It's going to be for a corner three, or is he going to stay? It's going to be a lob to the roller. He could see that ahead of time. So he's he's not worried about who's in front of him. He's trying to play two seconds ahead. Mm. Nolan, man, this was this was great. I'm I'm we're probably going to have to get back together and like make a masterclass yeah. for like 40 hours on just like <laughs> all do this it. stuff down, you know? Do no, this is great, man. Like, no, I appreciate you taking the time. I know that I know how busy your schedule is. You're probably about to get back in the gym right now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So talk to me. Um, any future projects coming up? Um, geez, so not really. I mean, I got you got your season and all that stuff. Deep in deep in season right now. So December we play three weekends in a row at home in Windsor and Vegas. Um, take a little break, come back first week of school or playing New Mexico. Um traveling a little bit more on the training side. I'm heading to Denmark and Sweden again in March. Uh, we'll be in Asia this summer. Got our trainings every day back home here, trying to trying to put Calgary on the map as much as possible, man, and and doing what we can. But now, nah, like honestly, I appreciate you and your time and you spotlighting good basketball and, and good people in basketball. And we need more of this. So it's great that the community is coming together and you're doing a great job.
Julian. So appreciate I, you, man. I appreciate you. And again, love what you are, you know, you and Eddie, what you guys are doing over there. And not just you and Eddie, like everything that you guys have going on at Edge, like is is top notch. And if people have the chance to swing by when they do go to Calgary, I do encourage them to go. Um, shoot, I might have to come down myself. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Okay. No, I appreciate you. I appreciate you. Um, we'll definitely have to get back together soon again because uh, we got some good stuff and we'll uh, we'll have to break some stuff down, man. For sure. Awesome, man. Looking I appreciate forward. you. Peace. Great guy. Great guy. And if you guys need, please go follow um go follow Nolan. Go follow um his father Rob and also go follow Deuce Brand. Catch you on the next one. Peace. Okay, so we have a fun one. In this week's basketball coaching section, we're going to look at how we can um prepare and plan to guard a downhill player. Now, what is a downhill player? That would be, we're going to characterize it as a player who likes to get to the paint, like just drive, right? So if you're thinking NBA, let's think someone like Russell Westbrook, right? Somebody like Giannis, right? Players that are able to catch the ball at the three-point line and just be physical and just drive and get down to the paint. How do we guard these players? You start thinking about a lot of th- a lot of times the way that I look at it is who do I want matched up with that player? And the way to look at it is what is the other player's um, attributes and what is his skill set, right? So if we're looking at someone that potentially is a big guard, right, a bigger guard, you really have to start paying attention to what defender you put on him. And the reason why I say that is there are multiple different attributes that your defenders have that have to be able to match up against that offensive player. So when you're looking at maybe a downhill player that's really good at moving side to side and is very strong physically, what you want to be able to do is you want to be able to put somebody who is equally as strong, who is equally as strong and physical, and somebody that's able to have pretty good lateral movement to be able to stay in front of him. Because we all know that just being able to contain a matchup and keeping somebody in front of you um, doesn't put you in rotations. And any good defense that doesn't put your players in rotation is an advantage of defense. So if you could keep the one-on-one matchup, that's what you want to be able to do. So offensively, pertaining to the other team's offense, what is this downhill player? What is their role? Are they more of a floor spacer? Are they more of a dominant ball handler? Because you got to pay attention to those two different ways because how you play the matchup is going to be dependent on what role do they have on the offense. So if I have somebody who's potentially a dominant ball handler and I know that they are going to handle the ball the most in the offense. And also a key point is you got to start looking at what, what are some of the key actions offensively that the other team is going to run? Is it going to be more pick and roll? Are they more post up? Are they um, screening off the ball, et cetera, et cetera? An offensive player that handles a lot of the load, you gotta be able to plan for how you're going to guard those actions. 
But what's the most important for you to have success is you got to know the player's tendencies. Knowing that this is a downhill player, whether you play them on the ball or off the ball, the mindset is going to be the same. If that player is going to try to get down to the paint, whether they got to make a decision on shooting the ball or driving, just the tendencies is going to dictate which decision they're going to make. As somebody that is a dominant ball handler is going to handle um, a major part of the offense, who in some situation, let's call them um, the maestro of the other team, just being able to handle, put players in position, et cetera, et cetera, make plays. What you want to look at is can you take away this player's vision? And sometimes just being able to have maybe somebody similar in size doesn't allow them to be able to create the same plays that they would potentially be able to do with a smaller matchup. Because we got to think, if somebody is maybe 6'5", 6'6", right, big guard, and is able to handle the ball, make decisions, what you want to do is, if you have the luxury of having somebody maybe who is 6'5", 6'6", and that is able to move the way that they can, what you want to be able to do is you want to put that player to get matched up. Because having somebody similar in size allows you to take away the vision of the player. But if you have someone who potentially is maybe smaller, well, as a 6'5 guard, if I have somebody who's 6'1", I can see over the defense and I could still create plays, right? So um, having a dominant ball handler, and if let's say this dominant ball handler is somebody that is a playmaker, what you want to be able to do is you want to take away vision. And a lot of time, a lot of time that starts with the one-on-one matchup. Now, if they're an off-the-ball player, what do you do? Because that somehow changes um, your approach to guarding this player. Maybe this player doesn't handle the ball as much, but this is still somebody that you have to be um, worried about because they make good decisions off the catch. So once they catch that ball, are you short close? Are you doing short closeouts? Are you stunting and getting back into the paint? Are you maybe forcing them to shoot um, out of rhythm jump shots? These are all the things that you got to start thinking about. And defensively, when you have your matchup that you want and you're guarding the person defensively, what are you doing off the ball? That can really affect um, the success that this downhill player may be able to have. Are you maybe staying in the gaps, being a little bit bigger, having hands, deterring this player from driving? Are you forcing this player to drive into crowds, right? Are you forcing this player maybe to see multiple bodies and then have to make plays because this player is not necessarily somebody who is a playmaker to their offense? You got to start paying attention to all these little factors because that's going to determine whether or not you have success in guarding this player. Something that I think is um, also important. This is like a little bonus. I think a lot of times just looking at the shot profile of a specific player helps you when you have to plan to guard them. So let me explain. If let's say I have a downhill player that maybe shoots two threes a game. If I force this player to shoot more than two threes in a game, right? If on average they're shooting two, and I maybe I'm making them have to shoot con- more contested jumpers, well, that player is going to feel uncomfortable. And I think that's something that we don't talk about enough. 
if you make somebody do something that they don't necessarily want to do, I think that's a win for your defense. And that's the way that you should be looking at it. If this downhill player maybe takes one three a game, if they shoot three and then they make two, um, instead of hanging your head and being like, oh, they made the two threes, well, the way that I would look at it is I would tell my defense that we are actually making this player do something that they don't want to do. And I think that in itself is a win. Because offensively, what teams are going to do is they're naturally always going to go to their strength. They're going to try to get um, the more natural, and they're going to try to get the personnel, the shots that they feel the most comfortable doing. So if I could get a downhill player to maybe um, take more jump shots, well, that's a win for my defense because every jump shot that this downhill player takes is a drive that they take away. So there's all little things that you could think about um, when trying to plan for a downhill player. I hope this was able to help in your preparation. Thank you guys for tuning in this week. Make sure to give me a five-star rating and a review if you enjoyed. Thank you to Mr. Nolan Willett, um, the associate head coach of Edge Prep. Make sure to keep up with him on social media. Keep up all things Dues brand and just keep up with what's going on with the season at Edge Prep. As for me, you guys know you could always follow me and give me a shout out and always interact with me. You guys know the at, at CoachO365 on every platform. And don't forget to subscribe to the YouTube channel for all your visual needs, video breakdowns, and more. This is your host, Kocho. Wishing you to have an amazing week. Thank you for joining us this week. And we'll see you all next week on the Project 365 Podcast.